Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is part 4 in our 12-part series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the title of today's study is A Clever Man Versus a Wise God. Our goal is to finish chapter 1 and chapter 2 today. So we do have a little bit of a climb, but I assure you we'll be out of here by 1. So let's jump right into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're in verse 17. This is where we left off last week. We'll read through verse 25, and then we'll cover the rest of the text as we work our way through the study today, beginning in verse 17. Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Those are some amazing words. For the rest of this chapter, and all the way through chapter 2 plus some, Paul continues to elaborate on the wisdom of God. We're going to see that this chapter and a half addressing true spiritual wisdom is one of the most important issues of all time. These verses are incredibly enlightening, not only because they tell us about the wisdom of God, but because they tell us how mankind can access and understand the wisdom of God. Think about that. That is a concept so big, we can hardly even begin to fathom what we're talking about here, knowing the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of man. It is at this fork in the road that all believers spiritually separate from unbelievers. The truths in these verses are the difference between eternal life and eternal death. This passage stands out in Scripture as one of the greatest confrontations and challenges to the mind of man. It really is the universal mano a mano, the one-on-one -on -one between God and man. This is a passage that should cause every philosopher to tremble. If a person can't come to grips with the verses that we just read, then according to Scripture, they cannot become a Christian. They cannot even begin to understand the mind of God. These verses show us that there is no middle ground on this issue. People either have access and understanding into the wisdom and the power of God, or they are completely helpless and cut apart from Him. As we're going to see in chapter 2, either you have the Spirit of God in you, which is the key to understanding the mind of God because it's the Spirit that dwells in God and knows His thoughts, or you don't have the Spirit. And therefore, without the Spirit, you have no understanding. But the crucial caution that we find Paul giving in this text is not only for the unbeliever. Even many Christians stray from the reality of the wisdom of God, and consequently, they get bogged down in the mire of human philosophy, human intellect, 
human rationale, and they pay for it whether they realize it or not. They frustrate the grace of God and miss out on many of the blessings of peace and joy, of purpose and assurance, and wisdom and power of God that is so freely available to them. The truth is we all miss out to some degree or another because none of us is perfect. That's why this text is for every one of us here today. Let's step back and see the big picture. You know that there is a battle, a horrific spiritual battle between the mind and truths of God and the intellect and opinions of man. One could almost say that every moral debate, every moral conflict at the root level is a conflict between the mind of God and the mind of man. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when mankind first challenged the wisdom of God. The question was asked, did God say? And both Eve and Adam bought into the question hook, line, and sinker. Does God really mean? Does that make sense? Don't you think? And the evil one continues to do everything possible to plant those questions in the mind of every human being. Doubt in the wisdom of God. Paul masterfully documents the history of humanity's mental failure and moral failure in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. Looking all the way back to hum early humanity, he had this to say, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul recognizes the monumental impact of this issue, not only in the Old Testament, but also now in and out of the church. So after reminding the Corinthian believers in chapter 1 of their position in Christ and then in their hope in the faithfulness of God, and after reminding them of the importance, the preeminence of sharing the gospel, Paul then immediately addresses the issue of mental idolatry. Nothing else in the next 14 chapters of this book makes any difference is that if a person is in conflict with what God thinks and what He says in His Word. We need to recognize that one of the first obstacles we will hit in the course of life is the mind of man. Our own strong opinion of our own thoughts and regardless of the fact that God created the universe and knows every detail in time, past, present, and future, regardless of the fact that God sees and knows everything, including the motivation of every human being's heart, and regardless of the fact that we are just a blip on the radar of humanity and history, and regardless of the fact that we as individuals hardly know anything in the grand scheme of the universe and life, we still tend to have very strong opinions and high esteem of what we think. So much so that we are even tempted to challenge the wisdom of God. And that hurdle comes up over and over in all of our lives. Thankfully, the Scriptures give us perfect insight on how to successfully leap this life-threatening and grace-resisting hurdle known as the mind of man. Before we study these verses, let's pray and ask God to give us His wisdom. Heavenly Father, this is a big issue. 
It's a monumental thought. Wisdom. What is it? Where do we find it? Who is the author? Lord, is a minimum. I, and I pray every person here, will recognize and acknowledge that in the grand scheme of history in the entire universe, we really do know about next to nothing. And so we ask this, this morning that you would open our eyes to wisdom, a wisdom that far supersedes the greatest intellect we as an individual could have. And even, Lord, a, a wisdom that far exceeds the intellect of humanity combined. We're looking for the wisdom of God. Lord, give us a spirit of humility as we approach this subject. And we ask that you would, and we know you will, enlighten us with truth. Surely that is wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we ended our study in verse 17. That amazing verse where Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The latter half of that verse is the link into today's study, the futility of the cleverness of man. We now come to verse 18 and the verses following, and we find incredible sights, insights into the wisdom of God. This is one of the most revealing passages in all of Scripture in regards to the wisdom of God. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We see here how the unbeliever perceives God's wisdom and how the believer perceives it. One sees nothing but foolishness. The Greek word there stands for absurdity and silliness. The other person sees divine power. Indeed, the world in general mocks Christians for their faith. You've heard it. They call our faith a crutch for the weak. They see that God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the nobodies of this world, and they think, that doesn't sound like a winning team to me. They hear the word sinner and they hate it because they only see their good compared to the more evil people around them. Consequently, we learn from this verse and we see the reality that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who don't believe it, it is foolishness. It's absurd. But it is the power of God to those who believe. That's a remarkable statement. The Greek word for power here specifically refers to miraculous power, supernatural power. The word of the cross, the message of the cross, is the supernatural power of God to you and to me. So stop and ask yourself with me, do I understand what Paul just said? Can I explain that phrase, even if just in simple terms, how the message of the cross is the power of God to me? That prompts deeper study questions. Is the verse talking about a specific strength, perhaps just for salvation, that happened at a time and a point in the past? Or is this power of God a general strength for all of life as well as salvation? And if it is for all of life, am I experiencing that power? Let me just give you the answer now so you know where we're going in this chapter. This power is for all of life as well. That's why this matter is so vital for believers to understand the whole message of the cross. We're not only talking about the power to be saved, but also the power of God to live for Him let me take you quickly to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The issues in the Corinthian church were by no means limited to them. Colossians 2, verses 1 to 7, Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodiceus. We're talking about the Laodicean church as well. 
and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So now we're talking about the majority of the churches. He says, I struggle on your behalf that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together, there's the fellowship, knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you and I aren't students of Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, if you and I aren't students of Christ, avid learners, disciples in the most committed sense, then we are missing out big time on all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are ours to be had. Praise God for His patience with us and his, for His provision. Paul goes on in Colossians 2 verse 4 to say, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. That would be the wisdom of man. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. These are phenomenal insights for the Christian who longs to live for God. Do you see how the truths in Colossians 2 support 1 Corinthians 1 and vice versa? The message of the cross, Jesus Christ Himself, is indeed the key to true wisdom. Let's explore this more. Back to 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 19 shows us how God treats human wisdom. This is no small matter. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The word wisdom there refers to their intelligence, their knowledge and understanding. It says, in the cleverness of the clever. It's interesting, the Greek word for clever literally means mentally put together. We're looking at the person who is indeed sharper than most everybody else in the room and appears to really have it all figured out. God says, and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Again, the Greek word for set aside means neutralize. To disannul, frustrate, to bring to naught, to make it nothing, to reject. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Next in verse 20, God specifically calls out and challenges three types of humanists. It's almost like he's picking a fight. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? That's the word for a, a professional secretary, a professional writer, or it was also used in the Bible times just in, in the general sense of an educated person. Where is the debater? The Greek word for debater, the disputer. It comes from the root word referring to sophist. Sophist, which we get the word philosopher from. Where is the debater, the disputer? It's, it's, it rever, refers to the investigator, the intellectual, the one who asks questions. Where is the debater? of this age. If you want to know where human wisdom will get you, look no further than the next phrase. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to God. If a person folds their arms and says, I will figure out God for myself, there is no hope for that man or woman. Let's be clear, though, we're not talking about searching for God out of sincerity and with an open mind and a heart and a willingness to place faith wherever it deserves to be placed. Everything involves faith because we can't possibly know everything. 
Faith has to kick in at some point for everyone, regardless of their view. So we're not talking about that kind of sincere searching. We're looking at a personal wisdom that elevates itself above the Word of God. God Himself. And this verse shows us, it gives us insight, it teaches us that no person in their own wisdom has ever come to know God. But the story doesn't end there. Here's where hope is introduced. The verse goes on to say, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The quote-unquote foolishness of the cross. When Jesus sat there hanging on the cross, he sure didn't look like a king. We have to admit it. He didn't look like a conquering hero come to rescue the Jews from the Romans. He looked foolish. But it was this man on this cross who soon became salvation to all who would believe. Not to those who figured him out, but to those who believe his message, the message of the cross and all that it stands for. Verse 22, this is where the unbeliever goes wrong, and this is Paul warning us what not to look for. Verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs. That specifically refers to miraculous signs, miracles. They wanted more miracles, as though all the miracles Christ performed were not enough. Do you really think one more miracle would have made a difference? After feeding 5,000 out of a one-sack lunch, after bringing someone back from the dead, do you think one more miracle really would have made a difference? Jesus didn't think so, and he told them as much. They wanted miracles. The verse goes on to say, in Greeks... Search for wisdom. Remember the city of Athens in Acts 17. This was the city of philosophers, the place where every idol and religion and myth could be found, every science. Again, every idol, including the idol to who? The idol to the unknown God. For thousands of years, men have been trying to figure out God on their own terms and with their own intellect. A few more years and a little more intelligence is not going to make any difference. So what should a person look for? What should the believer proclaim when inviting others to consider Christ? Do we preach a better, more comfortable life? In case we missed it, verse 23 but we preach Christ crucified. Paul anchors again into the centrality of Christ crucified for our sins. We don't preach baptism. It's not even about the right denomination. It's not about standards as good and important as all those things are as we saw last week. None of them saves us. None of them gives us the wisdom of God. It is only the message of Christ crucified on our behalf and risen again, resulting in the Spirit of God coming into us that even gives us the first letter of wisdom. Unfortunately, look at the effect God's wisdom has on those who refuse to believe it. A sad state. To Jews, that is the people waiting and hoping for a rescuer, a Savior, a Messiah, to Jews, this message is a stumbling block. It hurts, so they stub their toe on it. They trip over it. It causes them to fall and hurt themselves. And to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, everyone else, it's foolishness. But look at the effect of God's wisdom on those who will believe. Verse 24, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, we learn from this text that the message of Christ crucified is not only the key to salvation, but also the key to the power and the wisdom of God. More on this, on this in the verses ahead. Verse 25 compares these two wisdoms. Paul uses, again, a dramatic literary device to show us that the worst God has to offer is, the best, is better than the best that man can offer. He says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God, what a thought, eh? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul now addresses another topic pertaining to God's wisdom. He points out the candidates for God's wisdom. First, those who will likely fail the test. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Notice the relevance here to the people of Corinth. This prestigious city that took great pride in their wise, their great philosophers. They took great pride in the mighty, their champion athletes. And they took pride in the noble, the rich, the famous, the politically powerful among them. Scripture points out God is not looking for these people. Their odds, if I might use that word, are not good. But next we see the candidates for God's wisdom, those who qualify. And we also see the impact of shame and nullification that is brought on those who are disqualified. Notice that these are the opposite of the wise, the mighty, and the noble. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The word shame there in Greek means to disgrace, to confound, to dishonor. It, it literally refers to, to cause to blush. It embarrasses them, but this word in a much stronger sense. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that is, the nobodies, so that He may nullify the things that are. Nullify, again, Greek, to render entirely useless to abolish, to do away with, to make of no effect, to make void. He nullifies the things that are. That's referring to the somebodies, the wise, the strong, and the noble. This should make a person think twice about their approach to God and their estimation of their own wisdom. Truly, humility is the great gate to the wisdom of God. The Proverbs speak much to this. Beginning in the first chapter, you know this verse well, this, this verse very well. It's Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Could we ask for a better counsel than the Word of God? Proverbs 2, 1 to 9. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern what? Not wisdom. You will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. Why does God demand this humble approach to his wisdom? What is the goal, the purpose of such an attitude of humility and submission? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. We will have nothing to brag about if we discover the wisdom of God. It is all a sovereign work of him. And because he alone is God, because he alone is almighty, all-knowing, holy, righteous, perfect in every sense. Because he alone is God, his very de nature demands that he get all the glory for everything that is good. It is only 
right. Verse 30, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It is critical that we understand what Scripture is saying here. Christ Jesus became the wisdom of God to us. Salvation not only, excuse me, so yeah, salvation not only imparted forgiveness and eternal life to us, it imparted the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus and His Word as well. What a concept. Secondly, Christ Jesus became righteousness to us. This is what is often referred to as the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our sin and our condemnation became His, and His righteousness became ours. That's what we call the best deal ever seen. Thirdly, through the cross, Jesus Christ became sanctification to us. He became in us and made us set apart. A people are holy unto God. And finally, Jesus became redemption to us. Remember, Jesus didn't pay the price to buy us back to God. He was the price. The shed blood of Jesus that achieved remission for sins. The point is that every one of these four accomplishments is a divine miracle, a work of God and not of man. We as Christians err too often when we begin to assume that we have a part in these achievements particularly when we, when we assume that we, in our own strength, accomplish wisdom and sanctification and righteousness. We, when we incorrectly think, sure, redemption is all up to God, salvation is all Him, got it. But wisdom, that's where I use the good brain God gave me. Sanctification, that's where I wake up each morning and make myself do what is right. Friends, those thoughts are totally unbiblical. It is a work of God alone, and they are accomplished through Jesus Christ when we humble ourselves before His wisdom. It's truths like this and like these that teach me as a pastor and each of you as a Sunday school teacher and as Bible study leaders that no matter how long and how hard we study, Unless the Spirit of God miraculously gives us insight into the mind of God through His Word and Spirit, we will know nothing. It's truths like these that teach us to humbly plead with God to reveal Himself in His wisdom. It's truths like these that teach us to boast only in Him when His Spirit moves mightily among us through His Word. How dare the messenger take credit for the power of the message. While we do have a responsibility to exercise and exert our minds to the glory of God, while we do have a responsibility to passionately pursue and purpose to live godly in this fallen world, we must be very careful not to assume that we have the ability to do these things apart or even alongside the grace of God. It was and is and always will be Jesus Christ alone who through His Spirit, as we're going to see in a few minutes in chapter 2, it's through Jesus Christ alone and His Spirit that we receive the impartation of divine wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Going back to the first part of 1 Corinthians 1, we see why we are called to fellowship and unity and one mind and one judgment with Jesus Christ. We find all wisdom in Him and all righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Colossians 3.16, Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Why Christ? Why Christ alone? Verse 31, again, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are you still with me? Are you seeing the big picture? 
Am I even beginning to catch the drift of this entire text? Of how dependent I am on the wisdom of God and not what's in between here and here. Let's quickly look at chapter 2. Based on chapter 1, in chapter 2 we find the proper approach to both pursuing and sharing Christ and His wisdom. This is huge. Seeing that the power and wisdom of the message of the cross isn't dependent on our wisdom or our education or wordsmithing abilities or debating abilities, seeing that's not dependent on any of this, this radically changes our approach to sharing Christ with others. Does it mean that we throw all good preparation and good clear communication to the wind? Let's see what Paul says. Verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What a joy to hear that verse mentioned earlier before I even started preaching. Do you see the laser-sharp focus of Paul's mission for Christ? Oh, that that kind of focus and determination would rub off on us. Again, the message of God did not depend on human superiority of speech, I can't really say it, or human wisdom. So on the contrary, look in verse 31 at the proper posture, the right heart attitude, the personal awareness of humility that Paul had and truly any believer should have once they have seen a glimpse into the wisdom of God. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in words, in persuasive words of wisdom. Listen to Meyer's commentary on this. He said, Few know the fear and trembling of faithful ministers from a deep sense of their own weakness. They know how insufficient they are and are fearful for themselves. Paul had this healthy fear. Fast forward to chapter 9, verse 27 in 1 Corinthians, and we hear him say, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He knew his own weakness. Acts 18, 9 to 11. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. That was, he was was among the Corinthians in his prior missionary visit for a year and a half, like we talked about last week and before. He was there for a year and a half, and that's when he established their church. Again, Meyer's commentary reads, point one, Vincent says the implication of verse three is that his condition, Paul's condition, grew out of the circumstance in which he found himself in Corinth. Paul's weakness, fear, and trembling could have been the result of an illness he suffered while in Corinth. Or like some, some like Calvin, believe it was because of the threat of persecution. Well, and we see in Acts 18, it was indeed the threat of persecution and the threat of bodily harm that caused him concern. But he goes on, uh, Myers goes on in point two, whatever the exact cause, so great was his sense of weakness and fear and so profound his lack of trust in himself that he quaked, he trembled. Those are the secrets of strength in all preaching. The words of Morgan. Surely the same is true not only of the preacher, but of any person who proclaims the message of the cross. Again, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Sadly, we all too often see the exact opposite. Christians doing everything they can to come across across strong. No fear, 
no trembling, confident, witty, sure of themselves. And people love it because it tickles their ears and feeds the pride of life. But you know what's often missing? The Holy Spirit and the power of God. Let us not fall prey to such a poor approach to sharing our faith and pursuing God ourselves. Instead, weak, in fear, much trembling, not in persuasive words of wisdom, particularly man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. That is the gold standard for our testimony, our preaching, our proclaiming Christ, our Christian witness. Every one of us should ask ourselves, is that my demeanor as a Christian? Is that an accurate description of my Christian attitude toward others at work, at school, at the gym, in my marriage, in my church family, with my children, with my siblings? Do I recognize how weak and foolish I am apart from the wisdom and grace and goodness of God? Or again, do I all too often find myself attempting to be the wise, the strong, and the noble one in the group? I don't know about you, but that comes pretty easy for me. But that's not what I want. That's not what you want. Why is it that Paul took such a humble posture? Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let me just spit it out there. Paul is giving you the standard for measuring my preaching. He's telling you what Pastor Mark's preaching should sound and look like. Paul is helping us to know what kind of attitude to look for in a pastor and in any Christian teacher and indeed in any proclaiming Christian. This is the attitude and tactic we should take at work and at school and in our homes, etc. Let's be honest with each other. You know as well as I do how natural it is to do everything we can to make ourselves look good for God. The better I look, the better God looks because I'm a Christian. Yes, that's true, but only if our definition of good sounds like this. Weak, fearful, trembling, the whole attitude of humility, not depending on our own skills. Not so that people are impressed with us, but so they are impressed with God and the life-changing power of His Word and message. How important is this whole issue of humbling ourselves and recognizing our weakness so that we can receive and be channels of both the wisdom and the power and the salvation of God? Well, apparently it's important enough that Paul would devote a chapter and a half plus some to this topic. Notice how Paul has been dwelling on this point, repeating himself multiple times, like we observed last week and the week before. Paul didn't just type this, this letter up and hit the send button. Everything was painstakingly written by hand on costly parchment and delivered by hand 900 miles in this case of the letter to the church of Corinth. And he wants to spend this much time saying the same thing over and over? Yes. Because this is the whole key to finding the wisdom and the power of God. We as believers can't afford to miss it. We're looking at our humility at the feet of God's greatness. And what is the focus of his greatness? The message of the cross. Look at verse 6. I like how Paul takes a quick turn here for the sake of clarification. He knows the immature, shallow response that he's going to get from the people at Corinth. Remember, people who are not so different from you and me. They're going to ask something like, so what are you saying? Are we all supposed to be dumb? We don't need education. We don't need to prepare our thoughts. Don't bother communicating effectively. Don't be bold and strong and wise. Paul answered the question. Verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature 
a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, referencing the Old Testament now, Isaiah 64, 4, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. We're looking at the blessings of salvation and God's wisdom and power, not only to the Jews, but to all who believe. Do all these verses that we've read today sound like a dummy talking? Some ill-prepared, confused fellow peddling a cheap health-wealth gospel that he clearly hasn't even figured out for himself? Hardly. Not at all. Paul makes this point himself in his next letter to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, he says, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Think about what Paul just said. We're listening to a very articulate speaker and writer, one who cares very much about the message, one who recognizes that God is listening to every word he says. Paul's going to talk about this more in chapter 4. But as we see here, he's not articulating the wisdom of men. He's articulating the wisdom of God from a position of sincerity and humility. He recognizes that the message he carries is not something he figured out. It's a message and a power from God himself. Look at verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. Time isn't going to allow us to go deep into this portion of the chapter, this go around. Let it suffice to say that these last few verses explain the riddle of man ever receiving and knowing the wisdom of God in the first place. The verse, verse 10 goes on to say, For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Paul's saying, nobody knows what you're thinking except for you and the spirit inside of you. It's the same for God. He goes on to say, even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. And here's the supernatural link to man. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The point here, the Spirit of God teaches us everything we need to know. The worldly mind has nothing to offer. Matter of fact, in the last verse, verse 16, we see the audacity of humanity's wisdom. Here's where the proud, worldly mind not only tries to figure out God, it even goes so far as to teach and correct him. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We learn so much about life and the way it works and what our options are and what the results are, the consequences of each choice we make. Last week we asked ourselves, how many ailments does the body of Christ suffer from simply because they aren't keeping the main thing the main thing? And that is proclaiming the gospel. How many divisions would heal themselves if we simply operated in the unity that the scripture calls us to? Likewise today, I ask myself and I encourage you to ask yourself, how many ailments does the body of Christ suffer from? How many spiritual ailments 
do I suffer from simply because my view of my own opinion is too high and my admiration and respect for the wisdom of God is not nearly as high as it should be. Can we agree? Can we unite and have no division over? Can we be in one mind and one judgment and say, Lord, help me to stop depending on and showing off my own strength, wisdom, and fame. Secondly, help me to recognize the value of a weak, in fear, trembling, humble heart. And third, help me to boldly and joyfully proclaim the wisdom of God in the gospel, both in word and deed, not dependent on my own skills, but on your spirit and your power. It's not up to us. Why would we pray this? Because God's wisdom and God's power found in God's word through God's spirit is all the wisdom and power we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I hope and pray that I and every person here is now standing a little more humble before the greatness of you than we were when we came. How we need to be reminded of your wisdom. You are the almighty, all-knowing God. And yet how easy it is for us to look to ourselves for a few good thoughts of wisdom. How easy it is for us to look to others, to look to the wisdom of man. That indeed is foolishness. Help us to understand this, Lord. Humble our hearts. May this church family and all the church families in our community be known to the world, to the lost, as a humble people. A people who speak a truth that is unlike any truth that the world speaks. Something different, indeed something divine. Something that comes through a higher-powered spirit. Lord, the Spirit of God. Lord, at the same time, we rejoice at the fact that the ministry of the Word, the proclamation from the pulpit and the proclamation from the pew, neither depends on us. What a relief. It all depends on you because it is your truth. Lord, teach us to boast only in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.